This is Tommy Outdoors 115. And folks, just a quick reminder that now you can rate this podcast on Spotify. Spotify rolled out this option to rate the podcast. So if you're listening on Spotify, go in there and leave a five-star rating. It's a great help for me and for the podcast. And if you're listening on Apple, you always could leave the rating in there. So five-star rating on Apple. And on Apple, you can also write a review. That's a great help to write a review. All right, folks. Today, we are dealing with a difficult subject of coexistence with large carnivores, with human coexistence with large carnivores. And I know that many of you are waiting for this episode of the podcast. Uh, it is kind of related to rewilding, but we're not going to talk about rewilding today. We're going to specifically focus on coexistence with large carnivores. And folks, uh, our guest today is Dr. John Linnell. Um, John Linnell works as a senior scientist at the Department of Terrestrial Ecology at the Norwegian Institute of Nature Research and as a professor at the Department of Forestry and Wildlife Management at the Inland Norway University of Applied Science. Um, John is a well-known expert in, uh, in, the, in the subject of coexistence with large carnivores. And, uh, you know, John is awesome. Many of you knows John. And so I am super excited to, to bring you my conversation with John today. Uh, majority of that was spent discussing wolves uh, and why uh, it seems like coexistence with wolves is more difficult with other carnivores like bears and lynx. And this is ties nicely to the previous episode of the podcast where we talked about bears and rewilding with bears and conflict with bears. So uh, today we're going to talk about uh, wolves and compare like why even though coexistence with bears is difficult then maybe it looks like coexistence with wolves is even more difficult um, so uh, I'm sure you will enjoy this episode of the podcast and again those of you who are watching me on YouTube uh, you see my uh, t-shirt uh, very outdoorsy forest green uh, Tommy's Outdoors logo t-shirt. You can buy those t-shirts on tommysoutdoors.com t-shirts. Um, they're selling out pretty fast, so I hope you still can get the size you wanted. And finally, uh, you can support me uh, in what I do by buying me a coffee. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash tommysoutdoors, the link in the description of this show. I am editing those uh, episodes even extremely early in the morning or late at night because I have a day job. So this is how I'm rolling. So uh, any additional caffeine is greatly appreciated. So if you decided to buy me a coffee, then uh, I am sending you my personal thank you. So um, yeah, that's it, folks. And now without any further delay, Professor, Dr. Professor John Linnell, and coexistence with large carnivores. John, welcome to Tommy's Outdoors. Great to have you on the show. Great to be here, Tommy. Great, glad you make a time. And listen, what you do uh, is like a bang on what we do here on the podcast, human-wildlife interactions, uh, human-wildlife conflict. Um, 
I, I, I think it, it's, you know, it's fair to start. Like, what made you to make a decision and how, how did you get your, you know, interest and career in that, in that discipline, in those disciplines or in these regions of conservation? I don't think anybody really starts out thinking, hey, I'm going to work on human-wildlife conflict. You know, because I can have no one, well, hopefully no sane person can wake up in the morning and says, hey, I want to spend my life dealing with conflicts, right? That's not exactly the type of um, positive, motivating thing. So the conflict bit, I think this comes as a automatic consequence of actually working on wildlife. You know, that sort of as soon as you start dealing with kind of wildlife in the modern world, you know, which like a planet with, you know, however many billion people we are squished into a small space and wildlife, you will almost inevitably going to end up encountering conflicts. And this often comes, I think, as a kind of a bit of a shock to many people because everyone really gets into wildlife because people love wildlife. You know, they either love it or they have a fascination for it. Uh, and this can come, you know, from many backgrounds, right? You know, it can come from, like me, I just kind of grew up just enjoying wildlife, you know, seeing um, a fox in the garden or a badger in the garden or a seal swimming down at the harbor. You know, these were like little magical insights into this kind of um, parallel world out there, you know? Like if you can't see fairies and leprechauns and goblins and things, well, then seeing wildlife is a good second best. You know, they're living this little parallel world below our radar screen, and occasionally they show themselves to us. You know, you get this little glimpse, maybe maybe a stoat, you know, pops up, and you see it for like 10 seconds before, pop, it's gone again. And this kind of creates this kind of fascination, right? Other people you know, come from different backgrounds. They come from, you know, hunting, fishing, farming. So it's many entry points that bring you into a situation where you're fascinated with wildlife. And then you sort of start, you know, kind of getting education and adopting this as a profession rather than as a, a hobby. And then suddenly you begin to bump into the, the 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 backside of it that maybe not everyone shares that same fascination. Maybe your magical encounter with an animal, maybe some people are scared. Maybe some of the animals come into conflict with interests that people have. You know, or maybe just people just have a different value set, you know, and, and maybe they don't value having these other things out there. And then suddenly you encounter these conflicts. And at first it's quite hard because you're there for this kind of enthusiasm, fascination, all these positive things, you know, and suddenly you're bumping to somebody who confronts you and says, no, I, I don't agree, or I don't share that, or I completely come from a different place. And that is quite kind of um, challenging, I think, when you encounter that. That's true. I was, uh, I even heard um, one, I don't remember the name of the of the guy. He said, like, uh, conservation is managing conflict, yep. you know. Unfortunately, it is, you know, and like, I, I think we'd all love, you know, that if kind of conservation was simply about sharing enthusiasm, you know, um, but it isn't that, you know, it really is about just kind of recognizing that all the people around us, all of us are individuals. And we sit with very different interests, different values, different experiences, different tastes and preferences. And simply, we have to kind of find a way to accommodate all of these different kind of perspectives. 
Yeah. You know, and these kind of differences, it's not just like differences about which kind of football team we support or if we like to have pizza on a Friday or taco or, you know, do we like pineapple on the pizza or not, you know, or such existential questions. But these questions also extend to how we view wildlife. Yes. You know, and then ultimately that even extends into simply how do we view the role of people in the natural world? You know, are we dominant? Can we take everything that we need? Do we have to show consideration to other species or not? You know, these are fairly fundamental questions and everyone has their different and equally legitimate take on that. Listen, before before we before we get the, in into the heavier stuff, like mm-hmm. how much of your how much of your work is actual field work and how much is it like in the office crunching data and doing things like that? Who um well, I, I, I guess I, I could try and lie and tell you I spent my whole life in a tent living in the wilderness. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking that this is what you would like to do. <laughs> that certainly is what I would like to do. So I, I think all of us get into this game because that's where we enjoy spending our time. You know, like time outdoors, enjoying wild animals in wild places. You no, know, that's kind of what we dream about, right? And, you know, I guess that's part of the image that we'd like to cultivate and tell people that's actually kind of what we do. And I guess early on in, in my career, the situations allowed that type of thing too. You know, like I remember like in the, back when I was in my 20s, I used to spend, you know, months and months and months in the field, you know, very long stretches. And I still try and do, but unfortunately, I guess can, can things happen as you can grow up here, you know, and sort of that part of it is that you, the work, I think, takes you more and more indoors. But then you also can realize, I think, that if you want to make a difference, then you actually don't make that difference by being outside, having great natural experiences by yourself. That really feeds kind of your soul, you know, in a way, right? And it, it motivates, but it really only motivates you. And I am already motivated, so <laughs> you know, you know. So, and if you want to actually make some difference on on things, then you have to come into different settings, right? And that puts you, you know, into the office. It puts you in front of the computer. You know, you're you're writing, you're communicating. Um, you're analyzing data, you're trying to publish data, you're sitting in constant meetings and workshops and seminars, you're spending time talking to a guy in Tralee on a podcast. You know? Yeah, you know? thank you, I appreciate it. <laughs> like, so these are all the things that, you know, time that takes you away from being outside, but it's where you can begin to try to make a difference. You, know, you spend time teaching students, trying to communicate enthusiasm, so... I guess inevitably you get more and more pulled inside. So, and I guess all of us in this branch, you know, sit with this contention that we'd love to be out there, you know, but simply reality pulls us back in, you know, and um, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard balance, you know, it really is. And I know I can relate because, the, you know, podcast is called Tommy's Outdoors. And since I started it, I'm, I'm significantly less times outdoors because I'm editing podcasts and talking with people and all that. So I kind of, I can relate. I can totally relate to that. Okay. So now let's shift gears and, and go into the more serious stuff and uh, large predators in Europe. Large predators in Europe... Uh, I'm going to throw a statement in there, and if the statement is incorrect, you you will correct me. But how it looks to me is like large predators are making comeback in Europe. We have bears. There are reintroductions of bears, like, for example, in Pyrenees. 
wolves are spreading range. We he we hear uh, you know news from the excited uh, uh, environmental people. Oh, there's a wolf spotted in Belgium and wolf there and there. Um, links, I think links is doing pretty well as well, better than it used to. So it seems like it's a great news, right? Mm -hmm. Finally, great conservation news because all the well that we hear is like this goes extinct and 80% of that is hammered and 70% of that gone. Now we have a large carnivores, which are like, you know, synonymous of conservation and wilderness and, you know, making comeback in Europe. So it's a feel good story. But also like we, you know, started this podcast, there is a significant group of people who are actually not happy with large predators making comeback. Tell me from your perspective, your, your, this, is, this is your live, live and breathe, breathe this stuff, how this look like, how much of it is a good story, how much of it is a just escalation of conflict? It depends entirely on your point of view. You know, can the, can, can beauty is in the eye of the beholder, you know? And so viewing this like from a, a wildlife conservation point of view, I think the entire like last fifty to hundred years of Europe have been a dramatic conservation success story for an awful lot of wildlife. Now, can the, can the Europe say back in nineteen hundred or nineteen fifty was a pretty desolate place from a, a wildlife kind of point of view? You know, like we had been inheriting a legacy of centuries of really intensive human exploitation of the landscape at every level. But like the first half of the 20th century saw kind of relaxation of that pressure, you know, kind of people began moving from the farmland into the cities, um, kind of forests began coming back, uh, the wild herbivores began to come back, you know, like red deer, roe deer, moose, all these species began to return, and then the carnivores started to come back too. So, like, to be at a point where we are today, where we can say, well, in, in Europe, we have maybe 17,000 bears, maybe 17,000 wolves, maybe nine, ten thousand 10,000 lynx. You know, that would have been unsinkable back in the 1960s and 70s. You know, back then, it was really, you know, saving these species from the edge of extinction in Europe. They were really constrained to little small pockets. You know, a few bears here, a few wolves there. It was really looking quite grim. And now it's like these big numbers and like 17,000 bears in Europe. That is a lot of bears, you know. Is it correct that there's more bears in Europe than wolves? Oh, about the same, actually. They're kind of, kind of, kind of similar. And like here I'm talking about kind of Europe, sort of not including things like kind of Russia and stuff, right? So, you know, kind of the EU plus like Norway, Switzerland, and the Balkans, you know. So, it's, so, yeah, it's a lot of animals, right? And so this is an incredible success story, you know. And, like, even more kind of recently, like, I, I started working in the 90s. And then, like, for example, there hadn't been a wolf in Germany for decades, right? But today, there's over nearly 120 wolf packs breeding in Germany. You know, and, like, even in our game, even from the point of view of the 90s, this would have been, like... Nobody believed this. Nobody would even have sought the sort. And, and today, it's actually happened. So that is a very, very strong kind of conservation success story. And in general, kind of Europe is the home of many, many kind of similar conservation stories for many bird species, for many things, right? Obviously, we have many bad stories too, right? No, it's no shortage of species who are in trouble. But 
somewhat kind of paradoxically, these bigger species like the large herbivores, large carnivores, these things actually are remarkably adaptable. You know, so often we think that the big things are the vulnerable things and the small things kind of survive, but actually the big ones seem to be incredibly good at adapting both to the human landscape and to the changing landscape, you know, with kind of climate change and land use change and stuff. So these species really do make it in contrast to many smaller species that really are struggle. So to those of us who are fascinated by the big furry kind of charismatic things, in a way, are quite luckily placed in this kind of um, thing that, that we are the ones who can actually allow ourselves some conservation optimism. You know, <laughs> if you're really into butterflies and you know amphibians and lichens and you know some rare beetles, then you probably certainly have grounds to be quite pessimistic sometimes because those species are often very specialised in their habitat. They need old-growth forest or certain wetlands or certain types of grassland, you know, and th- those ones are in trouble. But the big, furry, charismatic things, they actually are remarkably robust. Is it like a, like a source of conflict because they kind of adapt and they, they, they you know, learn to live near humans and oh, yeah. they perceive, you know, all our actions as a source of food? Yep. You know whether it's scavenging a, a garbage can or or, or taking livestock. Hmm? So you see that that increase in conflict. Obviously, it's it's natural, right? With with the increase of, in number of animals. Sure, like kind of uh, it is clear because the, the one thing that you have to remember in a European conservation context is that the conservation of these large animals is not happening kind of over there in some type of wild wilderness national park area, but it's happening here, all around us. It's happening in our back in our backyard, it's happening in the fields, it's happening in the forests that we see outside the window. Right? It's happening in the villages. You know, this the whole landscape is where these these animals live. So it's automatic that these species come to very close kind of contact with people. And that, that opens the door for this, you know, whole diverse set of conflicts. Like, how bad is it in 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 Europe right now? You, do you do you do you think this is this is a serious this conflict? Is it a serious threat to this conservation success, or or is it uh, you know something to be recognized, but it it doesn't really you know hurt that much? What's your view on that? Yeah, um, hard to know. Um, I guess I oscillate a bit between different kind of points of view on this. That that tells me that you have a balanced point point of view. That you're not in any camp. You you evidence driven. You evidence based. And <laughs> that's well, very evidence, natural to go. Ev- evidence and evidence because kind of a lot of like our problem is that kind of when we actually begin to understand something, the world has changed, right? So pretty much we're always playing catch up, you know, in that sort of especially if you are actually taking the trouble to gather evidence and science that can take time and we pretty much Kate, we understood what was happening but we find the world has drifted a bit so i think all of us are a little bit in a guessing game when we're trying to you know look ahead um i guess sort of what i do fear a bit is that many of these issues are becoming political and this is when it gets difficult so like if you're dealing with the technical challenge of managing wildlife all right and this could be the same if it's managing deer or managing bears when it stays a technical task then 
it's always challenging, but it's something you can do. You can sit down, you talk to people, you plan things, you discuss, you try to find ways of changing things. You know, like, do you change from a normal garbage bin to a bear-proof garbage bin? You know, and that's not a big deal, right? It takes some money, someone has to pay for it, but life moves on, you know. And the same can happen with some of the other conflicts with livestock. You know, you can very often think, well, maybe we can just upgrade your sheep fence to an electric fence, you know, or something like that. And you can adapt. And all this costs money. It takes time. But you can get there. And it's amazing, you know, how much you can adapt things. But what we increasingly see today is that these issues are moving from being technical challenges to political symbol cases, right? And this is when, you know, you totally, the genie comes out of the bottle, right? And it's very difficult to get it back in again. And it's a way like we've had this huge kind of focus on Trump like for the last kind of four years, right? And it's populism and things. But no, kind of the, the, the US does not have a monopoly on that type of populist politician. You know, we have many of these things on a European level, you know, on the national level, and especially when you get down to the more local levels. And there's a couple of really cheap tricks that you can play in pol- in politics. And one of those politics is, you know, you first of all want to divide. There has to be an us, and for it to be an us, there must be a them. Come on, enemy. An enemy, right? Because then we can be something because we're not them. And that them can very easily become, you know, either the wolf lovers or that can become, say, the wolf haters, you know, either way. Um, it can also become like groups like immigrants and stuff, you know, very easy to have as them as well. And the wolves really much fit into them. You try to find easy explanations, you know, right? So modern politics is 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 challenging. We're in a very challenging social time. You know, there's many complex issues and these complex issues are very difficult to fix and difficult to explain. So you always look for a scapegoat, mm. right? You know, and a wolf is a perfect scapegoat. Like no animal, I think, has ever been better designed to be a scapegoat for all the world's ills. You know, everything that's gone wrong, you know, whether, you know, your girlfriend's angry at you or whether the local post office is closed or the road is full of potholes or who cares, you know, blame the wolf, right? You know, because it's... <laughs> And then the other, really, the, the lowest of the low trick in politics is to play the fear card. You know, make people scared, right? And that me, and then nothing can unifies can better than fear, right? And you know, if you can make people scared of that thing out there, it's really uh, this cheap trick. And it really, no, it's very easy to make people scared. Right, you know, we're all programmed to be scared, and it's so easy to make people frightened. And like that can be the the fear of the wolf, right? You know, it's going to eat you type stuff, you know, or else it can be the fear of the wolf conservationist, you know, and it's so easy if you go into a rural l- landscape, you know, trying to say get votes, and you create this image, you know, of these, you know, kind of um these urban kind of vegetarian, you know, cafe latte drinking, you know, wolf lovers. And, you know, they're going to bring back the wolf and it's going to and it's going to be the end of the world. They'll take away your hunting, take away your fishing. They'll close down the farm. The school will go. The priest will leave. The post office will close. Rural life is going to go to hell. And it's all because of the wolf. 
and just shoot a few wolves, and then everything will be be better again. You know, and like like sort of, it's so easy to sell this, right? It's simple, it's easy, it's visceral, and many politicians are playing that card. So either they do it with immigrants, they do it with wolves, they do it with bears. You know, there's always something that you can blame, right? And we see this more and more. And this is what I fear. This is where my fear is, is that it's becoming symbolic politics. And the wolf can survive many, many things. But surviving being turned into a political symbol in a populist kind of arena is going to be, I think, the greatest challenge wolves are going to face in the coming years. But that can also work the other way in, a, in, a, in favor of wolves. Right, mm-hmm. it does. we can like I I think that um you know we're jumping a little bit but it's 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 okay let's 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 keep keep on on wolves um because they are like a, such a like you said such an icon mm-hmm. and, and political uh, icon as well um like well, I think like one of the examples is is Poland where I, I think that political image kind of wolf benefited because. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, you can you can correct me if I'm wrong. That in most countries there's a uh, Annex Five where there is some management allowed, and then there's the Annex Four. Or maybe I'm just changing the the the, the numbers where they're critically endangered and like you know uh, protected. Full stop. And I think like in Poland, for example, we have this exact where wolf there is a conflict but because of you know actions of, of you know celebrities got involved and so on, there is like no no management of wolf and that so you you can argue that on one hand wolf benefited from that and we have a lot of wolves in poland on the other hand again the conflict it doesn't do anything to address the conflict because that that kind of that tactic is on goes from both sides did i get that right yeah well so to this sort of um clip of it the so the issue of kind of um, the legal framework in which wolves are managed, you know, in the EU countries is governed by the Habitat Directive, right? And different species um, are attached to different annexes, okay? And like, so you have the um, Annex Four, which is like strictly protected. Oh, so I got it right. So I so I got it the other, other way around. Okay. Exactly. So Annex Four is strictly protected. Annex Five is where sort of you're allowed to a greater flexibility in how you manage species. Basically, you can treat them like a normal game species, you know, with kind of hunting and quotas and things. You still have to achieve the same conservation outcome, right? So it doesn't have any effect on what your goal is, but the annex does limit or not the means that you're allowed to use to reach that goal. So in many kind of European countries, wolves are strictly protected. Which is often, which cannot often be a source of a conflict among hunters and farmers. Mm-hmm. But in in other countries, they are also on Alex Five, where you actually have this kind of flexibility to allow hunting. Like for example, in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, hunting's allowed. You know, they still have very successful wolf kind of conservation activities there, and, and the wolves also are doing great. But they are allowed to hunt them in a regulated way. Poland, like I say, is kind of exceptional because. Wolves there are legally on Annex 5. So Poland has the flexibility to decide for itself how it chooses to manage its wolves. Oh, okay. So this is where I got it wrong. So they are actually on Annex 5. They are. So in in theory, you know, there is nothing preventing Poland from deciding 
to utilize, say, some form of um, sustainable regulated hunting for wolf management. But they have domestically chosen to not utilize that freedom and to treat it as if it is a strictly protected species, as if it had been on Annex 4. So this is sort of, and like Spain has actually just passed the same um, goal. Um, also Slovakia recently has also done that as well. So quite a few countries have done this. And it's very kind of controversial um, as to what the impact of this type of strict protection versus a more hunting-based management is because it's a thing that um, also like it, it's, it's it's controversial because we really don't have the evidence. I think either way, you know, like we do know that um, you can conserve wolves and you can hunt wolves, right? So it's no contradiction between allowing hunting and achieving conservation. So that works for you know all of the wild herbivore species. We know it works for bears and wolves. So you can manage hunting in a certain way that it does not damage the um, ability of the population to survive. So, so that is not a technical contradiction, but the, the controversy often comes around: Does this actually help reduce conflicts? Mm. Right, and this is where certainly um, the evidence is much weaker. Um, to, to some extent, people think that hunting maybe uh, reduces the conflict with livestock, and, and again, the evidence here is very diffuse and uncertain you know it certainly does not have a dramatic effect if you want to protect livestock then you have to protect livestock you know you <laughs> right um and shooting carnivores it's maybe a part of that but certainly it will not be the primary tool right you know to, to take care of your sheep you take care of your sheep um when it comes to the the more social conflict you know the fear and the way people are frightened of it it's very hard to know like certainly, you hear these kind of um, narratives of you know people feel they don't have any power. They've been if if wolves are strictly protected, rural voices will often say that they feel like they have no agency. They can't do anything to protect themselves or take matters into their own hands. But that, they're less important than wolves. Yep, exactly. You know, the wolf gets a priority; their interests don't, and they they fear. This kind of restriction coming from above, and that can be coming from like the capital city. It can be coming from Brussels. You know, it's something outside. It's controlling you and taking away your agency in a way. And it's sort of this is a very common theme that we hear again and again. Um, what is unsure though is if allowing hunting of wolves if it actually helps. You know, they say let us hunt wolves and things will get kind of better. And we don't really know if it helps or not. Um, what I think we, we could say that in the places where wolf hunting has been a traditional activity, like in, say, the, the Baltic states, where wolf hunting has been going on the whole time, it still is, and it is no way is it a conservation problem. Certainly, I think if you took away the hunting, that would have a dramatic effect in increasing conflict levels because you'd be taking away something that people have. Yes. The question is, if introducing wolf hunting into a place that doesn't have that kind of tradition, if that actually then serves to undo the conflict or, or not, is a very, very open question. So this is probably one of the most kind of um, controversial issues that we have in, especially in wolf conservation, in, in Europe today concerns the role of hunting.
Yeah. You know, and um, it, it's very hard. And uh, I think in general, there is no single answer to it. It depends very much on where you are, you know, on your national cultural background and, um, and things. Yes. It's, it's like, it's kind of like, uh, I was even wondering if it was more of a sort of psychological, you know, like, oh, we can hunt wolves therefore we can do something about you know or in, in, like you said there's maybe not even you know technically it doesn't improve the safety of a livestock or anything else but at least gives that um psychological power like yeah i can actually do something and i go and i shot five and you know you feel like your animals are are safer thanks to that but but th so so that could mitigate that conflict but then like you said it may actually exaggerate that conflict somewhere else like like right mm -hmm. yeah this is what i that. said this is what i said like i would love to have wolves introduced in ireland and i i think like the biggest to me the biggest thing against that is the amount of social conflict that that would cause like there is a there is a a whole body of work to be done first in terms of uh, communication and and you know social sciences and so on to manage that situation in a way not like you said like technically it's simple you just you have wolves they have place to live they have stuff to eat that that's fine but then what would happen socially it, it wouldn't be good yeah no it's sort of like i i guess the thing that we can have skipped over here on the way is that sort of um i forgot to really underline that kind of the conflicts come in different shapes and forms, right? You know, you have the the technical economic conflicts that you can touch. You know, like uh, a wolf kills a sheep type stuff. You know, that type of stuff. It's something you can see it, you can touch it, you can measure it, and then you have the more social conflicts, and these tend to be mainly conflicts between people. So they might they're they're conflicts between people about the wolf. Not so much as conflicts between people and the wolves. It's like between, say, people who want to hunt or who don't want to hunt, you know, who have different ideas as to how wolves should be managed or not. You know, those who accept that wolves can live close to us compared to those who think all the wolves should be over there somewhere in a national park, you know, and not here, you know. So, and people really disagree about what is right and what's wrong, you know, in terms of this. Is it morally right or wrong to hunt a wolf? You know, people have very polarized views here. And then these type of groups come into conflict. Okay. And that's the origins of these kind of social conflicts. And certainly these are really the main conflicts and the hardest ones to deal with. And in this context, I think one of the things that we have seen is actually there's a conflict of um, expectation. And somehow people have grown up with this sort of idea that wolves belong in the wilderness, right? You know, like they are icons of the wild, icons of wilderness, you know, they belong over there somewhere, you know, in Alaska, in Yellowstone, or, you know, somewhere, some distant mountain range where they are wild and free and howling at the moon. And then when a wolf turns up in a cornfield, or it turns up outside a city, or maybe even inside a city, and or bear is eating your garbage outside your house. People think, but this doesn't match my expectation. What I see and what I expect are not the same. And then you immediately begin constructing, well, something must be wrong with it. That wolf, it can't be a real wolf. It must be 
Oh, it's um been illegally released, or it's a it's a hybrid, or it's not. It's weird. It's sick, and we have this huge conflict of expectation. And so, people I think who've grown up in landscapes can wear wolves are normal parts of the environment. Well, a wolf is a wolf. When that wolf turns up in Denmark or the Netherlands or Belgium or or Germany, it doesn't match this expectation, and then people perceive a slight conflict because it doesn't feel right. And I think this would be even more true, like for Britain or for Ireland, you know, which hasn't seen a wolf for you know two hundred and fifty years or three hundred years, you know. So kind of, I, I think simply people. Well, I don't know, but I'm just expecting that people would have a major sort of um, obstacle just to expand their view of the British or the Irish landscape to actually include a wolf in it. You know, like a fox, a badger, they handle that, right? Yeah, but you know, I, you know, I think that the, the, this 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 obstacle comes from not from again not from the wolf, but from from people. Because in 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 this is something I said on the podcast like many times like in any other country the wolf can just show up they just can turn up in in Netherlands or or Belgium and in the UK and in Ireland someone a person actually needs to have a permit and need to put that wolf in the crate and ship them over and release them and that is absolutely not something that people can swallow I think. That involvement of all because this is this is like this is them, right? Broad wolves and and in that in that picture the wolf disappears because there's these people who actually brought the wolves here. They just cannot turn up on their own devices. I think this is the biggest sure. obstacle. C- certainly, like you know, the wolves in Europe have not been reintroduced anywhere yet. Their expansion has been entirely driven by you know, themselves. But like, say, for lynx and bears, where we have had kind of reintroductions, certainly it appears that the the reintroduced populations are much more controversial than the places where they expand by themselves. And kind of like you say, it's because if they expand, then it's sort of it's kind of an act of God, or it's natural, and there's no one to blame, right? And I, I think most of us kind of. Would view that the wild animals are in a way innocent, you know, right? You know, they aren't planning evil things, right? But if someone has consciously done this, then it's not an act of God or an act of nature, but it's actually a human act. And then certainly it is very easy to say it was them, you know. And then the responsibility, but also it attaches in responsibility that then suddenly you are responsible for your bear or links, whatever it is, you know, it's your one and it's not behaving properly, therefore you <laughs> are responsible. Whereas if it's come by itself, well, okay, we don't like his behavior, but it's responsible for itself, you know? And so certainly the reintroduction context is always going to be much more challenging than natural expansion. Definitely. It's kind of... <sighs> Part of this kind of comes out too in that we have all these kind of wonderfully kind of fascinating conspiracy series are surrounding wolves, you know. So everywhere kind of where wolves tend to turn up, where they're not expected, you get these kind of conspiracies that uh, there must have been an illegal reintroduction, you know. And you get oh. these wonderful oh everywhere, you oh, know. I it's it's know like that. one of these urban legends, you know, like the alligator in the sewers and this type of stuff, you know, and things. You know, it just sort of it's everywhere, and 
they're sometimes they're wonderfully rich, right? You now you have the descriptions, you know, of the the black helicopters, of course, you know, who dropped them. <laughs> you have this dropping uh, wolves. Of course, yeah, that's everywhere, right? You know, and, oh god, and these go back to the seventies, right? And they keep coming up again and again and again. And then you have the blue Volkswagen camper van that seems to be a reoccurring element of it, you know, driving around, dropping off the wolves. And you have you have, you have guys you know writing books about this, you know, like in one of them it's brilliant, you know, because I actually get um implicated in planning um the early reintroduction of wolves in Scandinavia before I was even born. Oh, it, it, it's quite amazing, you know, wow. that kind of right back in the sixties. Ah, so I, you, so John, you're let's clear this up. You part of that conspiracy? I see. Yeah, now. exactly. You know, <laughs> it comes with certain status attached to this. Actually, you know. <laughs> this is the highlight of this episode, man. Right. I, like, I, never, I never met Elvis. I've never met aliens, <laughs> but you know, I have been part of this. And it, was, oh. it shows how these conspiracies are, you know, and so like often they are. I, like people go to great lengths and you know, arguing, oh, but look, you know, the tails are different shape or the colors slightly wrong, and it must have come from here. But then it gets a bit kind of sad because what you also see is that, like, we we have so much data based on genetics and behavior, which says the first of all, we know that wolves can travel far, right? A wolf, we we have had wolves who've traveled over a thousand kilometers, you know, in a straight line. You know, so it's no problem for a wolf, say, born in Poland. It could basically be anywhere in Europe within a year. Like in Germany, they had a wolf which had a, a um, GPS collar, and it ended up in Belarus. You know, it traveled all through Poland, through Lithuania, and ended up in Belarus. You know, so these wolves cross the landscape. We know they can do this with the genetics. We really have a very good idea as to where wolves come from. You know, sometimes it's a bit kind of obscene in that we've taken away their private lives, so we can really reconstruct some of these wolf expansions. That we know the two founders, then a third one came, and that led to more, and we can really trace the genetics of most of the packs back down to where it all started. And then you get these kind of conspiracy ideas coming in, challenging this. And then it's not the sort of people creating stories, but then you get other scientists coming in and other labs coming into the picture, presenting alternative facts, mm. right? Which totally fly in the face of the picture of kind of reality that's built up by tens of other scientists, but you still get these alternative facts, and in a way, it becomes a bit like kind of climate change kind of, kind of denial, or like the older tobacco denial or the ozone denial, that you can have a body of knowledge supported by the established science, and it'll always be one or two scientists who stand up and use their reputation to deny it, yeah. or to make cast doubt around it. Mm-hmm. And it, then it gets a bit sad because then you're going to end up in this world where scientists are fighting over over kind of reality and stuff and it's really quite bizarre sometimes but um so these conspiracy theories end up in incredible places right uh, i i only heard i only heard the conspiracy theories like that uh regarding wolves from the u.s i never i was never aware that the same thing is going on in in, in europe why do you think that wolves have a, such a special place compared to other 
carnivores because like you know i was intending to talk about all the carnivores in this podcast mm -hmm. and start with bear yet mm -hmm. we jump right into wolf and we're 40 minutes in and we still you know keep can keep going why why is it why wolf is like you would imagine like my favorite like personal favorite is bear like a big massive you know carnivore but it also sometimes go in the you know full cow mode and just eat track grass and, <laughs> and stuff um, so you would imagine that bear would be the biggest, you know, like a biggest and baddest and hard to introduce and like whatever. And somehow wolf, which is like, you know, it's a it's a dog. And if it gets to live to three, it's a big deal for it. Hmm. It's such a like, why is it? Why wolf? Yeah, I don't know. And like sort of I've never really been very kind of fascinated by the ecology of the wolves. Like to me, that's sort of, that's done. People know it as well, you know. So, but the human interaction is certainly fascinating, right? Um, as to why it takes off, I, I don't think I, I have the the single answer. I, I I guess it's a lot of different things that come into it. Kind of part of it, I would certainly say, is because we have such a close relationship with dogs. Right, that this lets us recognize a lot of things in wolves. You know, they're much more familiar in a way, right? Um, in a positive sense. But then again, I think that's also maybe partially what drives some of the conflicts in that sort of, in a way, a wolf is a dog that's gone bad, right? The dog follows our rules, right? You know, it. It doesn't pee in the corner. It doesn't drool too much. It doesn't chase the sheep. You know, it just l l loves us and behaves nicely, and we accept it. You know, but the wolf doesn't follow those rules. And I sometimes I think that some people get take that a bit personal. That they they really do think the wolf is a dog not behaving properly. Could be part of it. Um, certainly, though, I think if you go back into history, we we probably had very strong reasons to fear the wolf you know because they they can be a major source of very real conflict you know like if you are economically dependent on livestock you know like so take so think about a world where you didn't have subsidy you didn't have compensation systems you didn't have social welfare you know where you actually your survival depended on the few head of livestock that you had and especially in a european context in that past there was very little else for wolves to eat, right? So wolves kind of hung on in the, the European landscape long after we'd shot the last deer, you know. And then they were the very they were very predatory on livestock, and that predation had serious sort of economic impacts on on people's lives. So certainly we had plenty of reason to actually hate it from a simple a pragmatic economic point of view. And also, in the last maybe 10, 15 years, I think our view of the danger that wolves pose for human safety has also matured an awful lot. That um, There's been an awful lot of historical work, you know, digging through archives and different sources that really construct a, a picture of wolves as actually being... Um, a not insignificant threat to human safety in some locations and some periods of time. You know, if we go back to periods, say, when wolves had rabies, you know, this was a truly terrifying prospect. That the the historical accounts that you can read from Germany, Italy, France, Spain, like from the 1700s, 1800s, 
are nearly identical to what you read from, like, say, a modern medical or veterinary journal from India or Iran or China or somewhere. And you have these stories, you know, of this totally crazy wolf, you know, running into a village, you know, biting at everything, you know, cats, dogs, cows, people, sheep, anything in the way, biting, 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 and then running on, maybe going kilometers to the next village, same story, biting, 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 everything, until some brave people would maybe trap it, surround it, and beat it to death with spades and pitchforks and broomsticks and stuff, you know, often risk being bitten too. And if you're bitten by a wolf that has rabies, you pretty much sign your own death sentence. You know, if you, in the days before vaccination and post-exposure treatment came along, you were basically signing up for what is probably the most horrific death known to humankind, right? Rabies is not pretty, you know, and it is 100% fatal, you know, without treatment. So it's very easy to see how this could have really shaped our, our fear of this animal. So... And then it also provided the perfect symbol. Even back in the past, the wolf was kind of weaponized, right? In, you know, as a religious symbol of the devil and everything that's wrong. And so the poor wolf, you know, it was, it really was a kind of problematic animal. And then it got kind of weaponized in a way, you know, in its own times kind of populism and stuff. So what you, what you said, it was, it was, it was sucked in into the politics. All the time, you know, like the church loved to have the wolf as the symbol of everything that's wrong and stuff. So it's many reasons, both real and imaginary, I think, had just combined to create it. And partially because it was so demonized, that made it the perfect symbol for the revisionism of the environmental movement in the 60s and 70s, where when we're trying to negotiate a new relationship with the natural world, right, that wasn't based upon total domination and destroy everything, then in a way you look for the extreme symbols and you try to rehabilitate them and turn them around. Yeah. You know, so then the wolf gets turned backwards into this opposite symbol of, you know, we bring back the wolf and everything will, will be perfect with the environment. You know, all of our environmental problems will disappear if we bring back the wolf, you know, which again is a, a, a weaponization in a way, right, of it to suit someone's agenda. So it's just somehow it's just the perfect symbol for polarized views. And that makes it kind of fascinating from a, an academic point of view. Um, but certainly, you know, I personally have a much greater interest in the other species where you have a much greater range of kind of nuances, you know, yeah. like, like bears and lynx. You can actually get down to some nuances here. You're not for or against, you know, but people have much more complex ideas. Yeah. Okay. So just to not let this podcast dom been dominated by the wolves entirely, let's let's just let's just go through the uh, other species. Bear is the is like my personal favorite. Mm. So so bear managed to somehow fly under the radar. It seems to me there there there's a lot of them. Like you said, as my, as many as wolves, or maybe even more, or maybe as as many. You seldom hear bears being or maybe i'm wrong you know maybe i'm wrong maybe probably probably in pyrenees when they were introduced there's a different story you can tell tell me now whether but it, it's nowhere near the situation with wolves what's happening with bear exactly like you certainly do have some local flashpoints um where bears 
become the the big bad wolf in a way, right? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> certainly the Pyrenees in, in France have been one of these of flash points. But I, I think this we've always had a much more nuanced view of the bear. Like no one doubts that bears can be dangerous, you know, right? You know, you end up in the wrong side of a bear on the wrong day, you're in trouble, you know. But that sort of seems to be much more widely accepted. You know, people know that risk and they seem to be fairly happy to accept that, you know. Especially if you are have any experience with being outside in bear country, it's not something that you really think about, at least not in a European context. You know, I've been in Alaska, you know, and there where you encounter kind of, kind of grizzly bear tracks, you know, you're holding your pepper spray can in two hands, you know, just in case, right? But, you know, in Europe, you hike around, you know, in the Balkans or the Carpathians, and you don't even think about it. You see bear tracks, and, oh, wow, that's nice, you know? So even though we do know, without doubt, that bears can kill people, we, we don't have the same overreaction to it. But Throughout history, though, bears have had this very different status, you know. Uh, I think part of and it's it's been a status with a lot of respect in it. And also, I, I think we express an affinity to it. So like, a wolf may have an affinity with our dog, but I think the bear <coughs> is something that we have a personal affinity with, mm. that we attribute an awful lot of human characteristics to the bears. And part of this may come, I think, from the fact that they do occasionally stand up on two legs. You know, if you can skin a bear, it does look quite human. You know, it has yes. it has hands in a way, paws, five fingers, and it is somehow a lot about it is something that we directly have an affinity to it, and also we attach sort of qualities like brave and noble, and you know, strong to it. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas, like in, in in the past, wolves always know scared and cunning and sly and nasty. The bear had this noble thing. So, it's many different things we think have been acting and interacting here to create a sort of a very different relationship. Like in some of the the more kind of um ethnogra- more ethnographic studies that we've done in places like say the Balkans. Where people have a much more kind of, kind of traditional lifestyle, you know, they talk about bears as individuals. You know that you no, know, they have yeah, we have the bears here. They're nice. Oh, there's another bear over there. Well, he's a bit of a grumpy one. That one, you know. So uh, uh, maybe we might shoot him. You know, but these ones here, they're good because they're good bears. You know, they behave themselves, and we know them. We see them every year. But the wolf, you know, it's always this. You know, universally, the they're wolf is something. Yeah, exactly. You know. You demonize in a way, but bears become individuals. So it's so many things there. And like, it's not an accident that we all have a, a teddy bear in our bed. That's right. That's 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 right. Yeah, cuddly teddy bear and like, exactly. you're such a bear and like, whatever. Yeah. No. You know, and sort of, I, I think that also has an effect. Like, obviously, it came about that we picked the bear probably because of some reasons. But the fact that we have them, I think, leads to a bit of a kind of self-reinforcing cycle. Is it is it also a fact that they're they're not like 100%, you know, meat-eating animals? They, they're, they eat berries and they're... Sure. You can certainly, I think it's many things there, right, that add to this. You know, like your general image of a bear is something slowly moving around, doing its bear stuff, you know. 
it's not this sort of rapidly moving, scary, pack living yeah, thing, big you know. Pointy teeth. Exactly. You no, know, bears have big pointy teeth too, and they have big claws. Yeah. But still, they just somehow exercise restraint, you know. And like, I guess the whole image of a bear actually is this type of restrained strength. You know, we don't doubt the strength and the power and the speed, but somehow. Everything a bear does in his daily bear life is about kind of restraining that. Yeah. You know, it, it's not, a bear is an understatement of itself, you know? Yeah. In a way, right? So it, I think it's many things there. Um, but fundamentally, though, I think we all have respect and affinity at the bottom of it. Yeah. How, how, so bears, bears are doing pretty well in, in across the, are they expanding their range or? Yeah. But bears do everything slowly, you know? Wolves do everything quick. You know, they breed quickly, they disperse quickly. Bears breed slower, and they disperse much more slowly. You know, you get the odd male bear who just heads off into, um, you know, outer space and turns up in places where they haven't been for a long time. But the female bears, you know, they move very slowly. You know, so um, a daughter will basically establish overlapping with her mum or maybe neighbouring her. So that kind of dispersal front moves ever so slowly, naturally. Okay. But they certainly have been expanding in many places. They're holding their own in many places or, or most places. You do have a few of these little small populations which sort of um which are quite low numbers, you know, maybe under a hundred bears where you think mm, it would be nice if they could expand more. But often they're living in very fragmented landscapes and stuff where there's not much space to go to. So we do have some bear populations which certainly need to be monitored awfully carefully. And some of them will certainly need some assistance, like the Pyrenees. You know, it was down to such a few individuals that it needed to have new bears added. And it's always going to need more bears moving in for the foreseeable future, you know, to get to any size. But in general, they are holding their own and doing good. And even some of the ones that were quite small are expanding. Like, for example, in northern Spain, in the Cantabrian mountains, there's a bear population there. And that was like two little small relics um, holding on in the 70s. And now these have expanded. The two little populations have merged into one. And the numbers are slowly spreading. So if we give them space, you know, and time, they're pretty good at coming back, you know. That's um, good to hear. But That's they just good. do it slowly. Bears do everything a little bit more yeah. restrained. Yeah. But as long as we let them, they, they, will, they will get there. And in a way, it's good because it gives us a bit more time to adapt to them as well. You know, that sort of, um, I guess that's also part of the wolf issue is that suddenly they're back. You know, and they do it so quickly that we had no warning, no time to adapt. But the bears, you know, they come slowly. And time seems to be important in all these issues. We just have to get our heads around a new reality. True, true. Um, so the third one, I think, from the big three is lynx. Mm. How's things with lynx? I, I actually, it's it that that one completely lives under the radar. It like, does. What's up with what's up with lynx? Well. Kind of, first of all, lynx are cool. You know, kind of, that is the one of these big carnivores which I've worked most with kind of, kind, of, kind of directly in the field. And lynx are invisible, you know, and literally they are invisible. Like, I've been studying lynx ecology for ooh, how many years now? 20, 25 years. And in that time, 
I've only ever seen one Lynx by chance. Huh. Right, so I, I've captured them and worked with them and seen them in a work context, but simply by chance, I have seen one. And that was actually when I was in holiday in Estonia, driving the car down a main road. Okay, so, <laughs> right. it, so it wasn't even as a part of your work. It was just like... <laughs> exactly, you know. So seeing them in the forest, in the mountains, you, know, you don't see them. They see you. You know, I guess where I'm sitting now, I would certainly be surprised if there wasn't a lynx somewhere within maybe 10 kilometers of here, looking down here, but you don't see it. So they are literally invisible. They are also culturally invisible, right? <laughs> because you know, we, we don't have any stories of lynx. You know, we have Big fairy tales. No, the small lynx. It simply doesn't exist in our kind of cultural heritage, right? They were invisible. Mm. And I don't think we really view them as being a large carnivore. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people view them as being something like a fox and a badger or a wild cat or something. You know, they were so it's only recently we've kind of elevated them to this large carnivore status, mm-hmm. which may not have done them many favors, actually. <laughs> I think at times. But still, you know, so really they are invisible. Um but that makes them actually all the more fascinating, <laughs> actually. And in terms of how, how they're doing, um, if we say wind back the clock to the 60s, they were doing bad. You know, they were really, really doing bad. They were totally gone from kind of Western Europe. Um, in Northern Europe, they were... Few. It wasn't like a habitat loss or or hunting? Because if they're, if they're you know, if they're invisible and we had, don't have any strong cultural or associations then i presume there wasn't like a massive persecution or anything so was it, it must have been habitat loss is it I, I guess it was habitat and also loss of prey um because the, they are like the, they aren't like wolves and bears who can feed on berries or garbage and stuff you know they kill to eat and they tend to be very sensitive to prey loss and if we go back to the 19th century, early 20th century, the lynx prey was pretty much gone, right, from most of Europe. But they were hunted directly. Um, the fur was valued, and there was certainly was a direct hunting pressure on them and trapping. So then, you know, th- that brought us, say, to the, the 70s, and then kind of they were a few relic populations here and there in Scandinavia. And otherwise, it was really the Carpathians were like their last real holdout in Europe, you know, kind of Romania, Slovakia, down there, and a few left on the border between Albo- um, Macedonia and Albania. And then kind of this whole, you know, conservation movement came in the 70s and legislation came. And then links have been very widely reintroduced. Oh. Right. So like, and the early reintroductions go back to the 1970s. So like, I think it was in 1974 that the... Um, Yugoslavian Hunting Association um, organized a reintroduction of links from Slovakia back to a Slovenia, Croatia, mm-hmm. you know, and that hunting kind of stuff. Association. Yeah. And in Switzerland, the Hunting Association were involved in um, a consortia who started the first of many reintroductions into Switzerland. And since then, there's been many reintroductions in France and many parts of Germany, parts of Poland. Um, Austria, Switzerland, um, parts of Italy. So it's been very widely reintroduced in many areas. And then in the north, um, we've had no reintroductions, but they have been expanding naturally. So today, lynx are certainly the most 
geographically widespread of the larger carnivores in Scandinavia. No, so they are coming back. The European reintroductions have gone slow. Kind of, um, they've they're back in many places. Some places do well, some do badly. Um, and even like maybe what thirty years, forty years after the first kind of reintroductions into Switzerland, they're still having to think about bringing more animals in to move it along. So generally, they're doing well. So but, they're not breeding um, like they they're also breeding slow, right? Is that right? In between, you know, they're sort of they're like an in intermediate bear so, and wolf. A wolf, exactly. You know, so they are quite vulnerable to things. They're kind of um, they don't do so well in very fragmented landscapes. Um, they often get hit by traffic and this kind of stuff. So okay, but they are generally. I, I would say we have reasons to be certainly. It, it's no panic at all. You know, the big populations are big. The small ones are increasing or stable, but sort of so we can be confidently optimistic with a little touch of caution around some of them. But in general, there's so much so much work going on, and like like right now, there's active reintroductions or planned reintroductions in Germany and Poland and places. So work is being done, you know. So they're going to need assistance, but they're generally coming back. Fairly slowly, is, is yes. there is there much conflict around links? Yeah, it's mainly with hunters. Um, oh, with hunters. Who, yeah, who oh, fear? You just said that the hunters' association introduced them, and now it's a conflict with hunters. Yeah, exactly. You know, how but odd. Everyone is well. No, like people are really good at having very conflicting uh, ideas, right? No, it's largely I think a fear of kind of competition, um, because the lynx is an incredibly effective hunter. You know, for kind of roe deer, chamois, um, for young red deer, you know, a lynx is a predator. You know, it, it's a cat, right? And and cats are just, you no, know, they are designed to be the perfect predators. You know, and lynx are so efficient at you know finding prey, killing prey, eating it, moving on, doing it again. You know, they do it discreetly, they do it silently, but they do this. And some hunters, you know, value this, you know, and they will take their hat off to the lynx as a colleague, you know, who shares their passion. Other hunters view this as a threat, you know, sometimes maybe a threat for the same prey, but also maybe a bit kind of like the wolf. I think they also maybe view it as a symbolic threat, you know, because hunters generally feel that they're under pressure from society, you know, in general. In many countries, there's a very strong anti-hunting movement. And many hunters kind of fear that their their passion, their pastime, their hobby, you know, kind of can, can, can they call it uh, of what you like, is threatened. And then if Lynx comes back, then maybe they'll feel they're not needed anymore, you know, because maybe the Lynx will take over what sometimes they perceive as being their job, you know, to uh, regulate okay. the prey. Uh-huh. So it's, it's a complex set of emotions here. I don't think you ever get the hatred that you get for wolves, you know. But some people people will certainly, I think, be a bit concerned that the return of the lynx can be associated with some changes that they don't like. But I think virtually everyone will also feel a certain fascination for the lynx too, right? You know, people... And like here where I live, you know, lynx hunting has been a, a huge issue for decades and and the hunters put an incredible um, prestige into lynx hunting. It's an incredibly challenging species to hunt. You know, it takes skill, 
it's maybe something they succeed with once in a lifetime. Or will they buy them for to hunt them, or or they just? No, oh, it's it is mixed. Sometimes they use um, box traps. Sometimes dogs. Sometimes it's oh, large like hunting a, teams. Yeah, with dogs. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, so gotcha. it's it's many different um, approaches, but. The interesting thing is that these people who hunt the lynx, you know, those are the people who know that animal, you know, because they have spent, you know, I don't know how many days out there in the forest following lynx tracks in the snow. You know, they are searching for them, looking for them. So they actually, of virtually all the people who we talk to, they're the ones who have the easiest time to relate to the type of scientific knowledge that we produce because, well, they've been out there, they've experienced it, they've spent the time with the animal in that terrain and they will virtually all attribute an awful lot of respect you know to that cat because you know they know they spent two or three days slogging down that track in the snow you know and the lynx probably went there in half an hour you know up that mountain <laughs> down the mountain across the river up the side bunk, and they're plodding along day after day trying to catch up with it so they they've lived it you know so um no, it's quite an interesting kind of um, contradiction to many people. This, I think, actually, you know, these kind of complex views hunters have. Uh, I, you know, I see this all the time, um, and that only reinforces the fact that this is very complex, and there's no, no, like a, you know, e- even group like hunters or farmers. This is not like a one homogeneous group, and there are different groups within that, and they have different. Uh, you know opinions and wants and and fears and and so on and so forth listen john uh we're gonna be wrapping this up slowly what would be your advice let's say let's wrap let's let's frame it as an advice for for people who are conscious and they they like these animals and they like uh to have wolf and bear and lynx around at the same time they perfectly aware of the conflicts they perfectly aware of uh, you, you know, losses and 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 problems that that might uh, bring. You know, whether these people are in NGOs, whether those people are in hunting organizations, or maybe they're just individuals. What would be your your advice? I, I guess there's a couple of words which um come to mind. So one of them would be that I I, I would guess kind of sustainability comes to mind. And here I'm not talking about kind of, kind, of, kind, of, kind of recycling plastic and stuff, but I'm talking about playing a long game, right? That for none of these species are we in a crisis, right? We've we got to the stage now where the crisis happened back in the 70s and whatever, 60s and stuff. We're shrewd at the kind of bottleneck. All of them have big populations. We have multiple populations. Most of them are doing well or stable. So these species are not going to disappear anytime soon. So we can, in a way, relax the shoulders a bit, I think, and to just think the long term that what we have to do is find a way to build that long-term sustainable relationship with these wild animals in our shared landscapes. And I don't think we actually know how that looks because we never really tried it. Our entire history has been one of either active persecution or simply not caring, you know. And that brought us, for most of the species, to the edge of extinction in, say, the early to mid-20th century. So we've never tried this, well, let's actually live kind of together. Mm-hmm. So we don't actually know how it looks, you know. And that's why we have these debates about, you know, should we hunt them, should we not hunt them, should we reintroduce, should we let them come by themselves? We simply don't have the answer. 
So we need, I think, just to slow it down and be a little bit less kind of overconfident in that we have the answers and just try to find a way to build a sustainable relationship. You know, um, so that, that's the first conclusion. I would say the second word is that we have to be emphatic um, and that's sort of the prerequisite for conservation of anything is that we have a certain empathy, right? That we base it upon the a value choice that we actually want to have these animals out there. We don't need to have them out there, but we make a choice that we want to because we emphasize with them, that we think the world is a better place when we have them out there, right? But we need to be very careful about the way that we display that empathy because we also, first of all, we shouldn't emphasize too much and that we shouldn't romanticize it. You know, a wolf, a bear, a lynx, these can be difficult neighbors. You know, they do create real problems. Um, some of them do behave badly. You know, some of them do things that we don't want them to do and they're not, some of them will not stop so that we cannot over romanticize it. So empathy, yes, but don't go too Bambi on it, you know. And the final part of that empathy story is that we also need to have empathy for other people. And that these could well be people that we totally disagree with. Like it could be people we simply don't understand um, because we don't come from that area or that tradition, that occupation. You know, some hunt, some don't, some farm, some don't farm, some bird watch, others don't. You know, but we need to understand that we're all very different and that some people have very different takes on things. They have different values. And we have to have a sustainable relationship with these people around us. You know, we have to live surrounded by people that we may not agree with, right? And we somehow have to find a way to live with them. You know, we may agree on some things, we might not agree on other things. And this works. And we have to keep on being aware of this, that we will not get everyone to agree with us. And that we need to somehow find some way to negotiate differences of opinion. Yes. And come up with answers that maybe we don't like everything, but maybe if it doesn't violate our bottom line, then maybe we can accept it. So this is sort of that sort of expanding that empathy thing to, uh, I guess, to embrace kind of to embrace pluralism, you know, that we have to accept that people are different and somehow we need to share space, not just with large animals, but also with our neighbors and other people around us. So sharing space is complicated, right? And sharing is involves give and take. And this extends to the human and to the non-human members of our landscape. That's that's a that's a perfect summary. Um John, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking with you and, and very educational. Thank you. No problem. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 